All right, I'm very excited to uh, go through this with you because we're continuing the theme that we began last lecture on the public ministry of Jesus as it revolves around the announcement of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We saw how Jesus prepares through his baptism. Uh, he's anointed. Uh, he defeats Satan in the wilderness. He's going to continue to defeat Satan throughout his whole public ministry, leading up to the Paschal Mysteries, of course. But then the miracles uh, demonstrate that the kingdom has come. Uh, we saw all this stuff. You know, even, G even Jesus making Peter the Al-Chabayit, the Grand Puba, for his kingdom. Now I want to continue along those themes of the kingdom because we only have two lectures to talk about the entire life of Christ here, or at least the public ministry. That's pretty darn difficult. So that's why I want to narrow down on this theme of the kingdom as it relates to his teachings in this lecture and then his deeds in the last lecture. All right, that being said here, looking at the notes, I want to begin in Luke chapter 4 with the proclamation of the Messiah's Jubilee. What does that mean? Well, let me just take you to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. Let's read a few verses here, then unpack this. As it relates, we're going to see this great messianic jubilee is, is part and partial of the messianic kingdom. All right, so chapter 4, verse 16 says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he went to the synagogue, as was his custom, on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and there was given to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened the book and found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and, re and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, End quote. And then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone speaks well of him, and they're all excited, and it goes on from there. All right, this is a really, really important passage here. And in Luke's account, guess what? It comes right after the, the temptation of Jesus. So he's baptized, the temptation. He begins preaching and teaching in Galilee. And then he goes to Nazareth, his hometown synagogue, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah, and he goes to this passage, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and following. We touched upon this last lecture about how... The, the Messiah is going to um, come along and proclaim the kingdom, and he'll accompany it with all of these different miracles. Okay, we talked about that last time. Well, there's more to it than this, because when, when Jesus reads Isaiah 61, what this is alluding to, what he says, the acceptable year of the Lord, that is the messianic jubilee year. Well, what is the jubilee year? The jubilee year in the Old Testament occurred every 50 years. So every seventh year was a sabbatical year. We have that here, of course, in academic circles. You can take your sabbatical year to recharge or write a book or whatever it might be. You have your sabbatical year. Well, every seventh, seventh year, yeah, the year after is the great jubilee year. It's the 50th year, and it commemorates the exodus. <clears throat> the exodus, I said it time and time again, is the quintessential paradigm of salvation. So God delivers his people. He shows them mercy. And so what God wants the people to do is to show each other mercy and to kind of have this, as Isaiah says, a year of release, right? To set um, at liberty those who are oppressed, etc. So there are three elements to the Jubilee year in the Old Testament. The first is the release of slaves. Every 50 years, all slaves needed to be released. The second is the cancellation of all financial debts, which is a big deal. I mean, could you imagine if your Jerusalem credit card is maxed out, then all of a sudden and it's the 50th year and boom, it's all cleared. That would be amazing. Debt forgiveness here. Now, obviously, the economy doesn't work that way, but it gives you the sense like your debts are forgiven. 
And then finally, number three, you would have the return of your ancestral land. So if you ended up having to sell your land to pay off debt or whatever, whatever might have happened, that land, because it's your ancestral land given to you by family going all the way back to Joshua, what would happen here is it would be returned to you every 50th year. Those three things, release of slaves, cancellation of financial debts, and the return of your ancestral land. Now, according to the prophets, like this, this prophet here, Isaiah chapter 61, when the Messiah comes, he would be anointed. We saw that. The Messiah means the anointed one. He is publicly anointed at his baptism, and he would proclaim the messianic jubilee. So Jesus, as the Messiah, as the son of David, transforms and upgrades the jubilee year of the Old Testament into the jubilee year of the new covenant. And so he transforms these three aspects profoundly. The release of slaves is now transformed to the point where Jesus now releases us from slavery to Satan and sin. The cancellation of financial debts, now Jesus pays our spiritual debt. There's a great line that circulates around the the preachers and teachers. Uh, It comes to mind right now, so I hope I don't botch this up. But essentially it's, you know, Jesus came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owe a debt we cannot pay. Our spiritual debt to God is infinite. When we're when we sin against an infinite God, we can't pay it off because all of the the, the ways that we should try to pay it off through prayer, fasting, almsgiving, whatever it might be, it's still temporal because it's from a finite creature. So Jesus pays that spiritual debt for us. Okay, and then the third aspect of the return of the land points forward, and now how Jesus returns us to the promised land, the heavenly promised land of eternity, of the Sabbath rest with God, okay? So these are the three aspects. When Jesus comes along and he opens his mouth and and says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, he is saying, one, I am the anointed one, I am the Messiah, and then two, the messianic jubilee year is here. It's here and it accompanies, it comes with the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. So all of Jesus's deeds, the miracles, demonstrate this, like he says here in Isaiah, and the whole context is important, but, you know, he has sent me to uh, recover sight to the blind. All the miracles that he's performing demonstrates the arrival of the kingdom, the arrival of the messianic year, and all of his teachings are going to do the same as well, okay? The year of release has come. The new exodus has come, all right? So hope you're tracking with me on that. This is how in Luke's account, he begins his public ministry by teaching in this very significant Old Testament way. Okay, so the next thing we want to look at then for the rest of our for the rest of our time together is I'd like to spend some time with you looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is the one of the most famous teachings, if not the most famous teaching of Jesus in Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We'll spend some time looking at the highlights, the tip of the iceberg yet again of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And then what I'd like to do after that is look at some key parables. So the Sermon on the Mount and the parables and how they demonstrate the arrival of the kingdom of God, our participation in that kingdom, and what we can learn about the kingdom, the king, the kingdom, and ourselves as citizens of the kingdom through the parables. All right, so let's dive into Matthew chapter 5, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Obviously, books have been written about this. It's it's super challenging to do this. And what are we going to do? Half an hour, give or take, less than that. So let me just look at the the highlights. And the first thing to keep in mind is that the Sermon on the Mount is a summary of the entire Christian life. 
we can read this every single day over and over again, meditating and praying over the Sermon on the Mount and how we are called to the kingdom of the heavenly father and how we're to behave towards our father and towards our brothers and sisters, our siblings in the kingdom. So it summarizes our entire Christian life. It, it, it really can't be overstated, truly. Now, as the Sermon on the Mount begins, it says Jesus, this is chapter five, verse one, Jesus went up to the mountain, then he sat down, he opened his mouth and began to teach. Well, this is important because here Jesus is going to the top of the mountain to give his disciples and his followers, to give the people of God a new law. So that is a strong echo yet again of Moses. Jesus is being depicted here as a new Moses. He goes up to a new mountain to give a new law. And surprise, surprise, this comes right after the 40 days in the wilderness, which was chapter 4. So just as Moses went up to the mountain for 40 days to fast before giving the people the law, so too does Jesus fast for 40 days, defeats Satan in the wilderness, and then gives the people a new law. You see? So the difference, however, with Moses and Jesus is back in Exodus, all the people remained at the foot of the mountain. Moses went up by himself. The people stayed down at the foot of the mountain and they're scared to death of the thunder and the lightning and the earthquakes. So they're soiling themselves because they know they're unworthy at the bottom of the mountain. The difference now is Jesus brings the people up to the mountain with him because that's the point. He is the new Moses in his new Exodus wants to bring the people into relationship with God, restored friendship with God the Father. All right, so he's not just a new Moses on a new mountain bringing a new law. He's also a new Solomon too. Jesus is a new Solomon because he gives the people wisdom. And he speaks in, as we're going to see later, parables. And Solomon was very well known for not just the wives and the concubines, but his wisdom, right? Uh, Solomon was the wisest king of all, and he gave the people, the people of God, wisdom. So Jesus now is doing the same thing, speaking in riddles, speaking in parables and proverbs, and giving the people wisdom from the mountain. Okay, so I said before, you're going to get sick and tired of me saying Jesus knew this and knew that. Like, but he says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I come to make all things new. So you're not going to understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. All of the figures and the characters, the geography, all these things that we've been spending time on in this introductory course shed so much light on what Jesus is doing here when he does make all things new. Okay, so hopefully that excites you. It definitely excites me. So uh, here we are then. That's kind of an introduction super quick on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's dive into the sermon and begin with the Beatitudes.